This episode contains scenes of violence and drug use and may not be suitable for all audiences. Alright, so take two. <laughs> we we were recording this whole thing and then we errored out in the middle of it just like the good old days. I mean we could have gotten a lot further, so I guess <laughs> oh, I guess man. it could have been worse. I looked over and I was like, oh shit, we're not recording anything. We're just talking we were talking <laughs> we're just for having like a chat. twenty minutes. And there was an, it oh, just completely stopped it recording. It's okay, it's good to get a second crack so at it. Basically what we were talking about this whole time <laughs> is um third part of Altamont, the Rolling Stones are about to hit the stage, yep. and um, we always hear about what happens during this performance, where Meredith Hunter Murdoch um, is you know, attacked by the Hells Angels, and a lot of people always kind of skirt over the whole Meredith Hunter issue, and they just talk about, well, he died. And they, they don't, they talk about, well, he was a guy on speed who pulled a gun, and he died. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's not really a death sentence you know having a gun yeah and they can't be judge trial wait what is it <laughs> <laughs> judge jury you did that yesterday judge, judge jury trial and executioner, and executioner is what you said judge and i was like i think executioner. it's judge jury i was like i don't know <laughs> so judge jury we don't want to skirt over um skirt over meredith hunter murdoch like i feel like a lot of these publications do and just kind of toss it away as being like oh it was a guy who was high on speed a guy who was like i even went on if you go to the youtube of the death of meredith hunter and you Mm -hmm. watch this scene from gimme shelter which we just finished up um the top comment is like a guy who was out of his mind on speed did this and that and it's like that is not a death sentence. We've all been That's fucked up happened. before. Like we've all gotten messed up and have done things that were very regrettable. Mm-hmm. And this is not a death sentence. Well, to- and and we'll get into the details of it, but what they really fail to mention in a lot of these what I had heard from my impression of it back in the day before I'd researched it, what they make it sound like someone was on speed and pulled a gun out and then the Hells Angels yeah, get on yeah. him, but that's not what happened. Yeah, it's not he what happened the gun out at all after so being attacked multiple before times. Before we get yeah. into the Rolling Stones getting on stage, and just to kind of catch people up in case you haven't listened to the first two installments of this, which you definitely should if yeah, you're just checking this scene. out now. Very bleak scene. Yeah. Um, a lot of the jugs, of, a lot of the jugs of wine that were uh, being passed around at the show were laced with really bad acid. People were tripping left and right. Really bad trips. If you watch Gimme Shelter, it shows you exactly what we're it talking has about. yeah I, I watched it last night and then we watched it again just now um and you know us talking about it in the episodes it's like okay people were having bad acid trips and you can kind of picture what that looks like but like when i was watching this footage of people in broad daylight just naked just like rolling around in the dirt screaming like this total lizard brain shit where they're just like they, they're just lost. They're just completely yeah. lost. And there's one, you know, there's a woman completely naked. She's being led to the medical tent. You know, it's yeah. just, it's, it's the vibe is bad. There's just aggressive people. The yeah. Hells Angels a are lot pulling the, uh, people off each other's shoulders. Like yeah. people are on people's shoulders and the Hells Angels are just like yanking them onto the ground. Yeah. It's like, what? It's just aggressive. And yeah, there's a lot going on just like that. And um, the Angels are really fighting for the stage. 
and Sonny Barger just put all of the motorcycles to try yeah. to make a blockade in front of the stage. So now people are like knocking over bikes and leaning on the bikes. And, and the that's Hells an Angels excuse for the Hells Angels to more mad. So then there's just, there's just violent scene after violent scene. Everybody's messed up. There's no water. There's no food. Yeah. There's no bathrooms. There's bad acid. There's 300,000 people. Oh, 300,000 people. 300, we saw dad yesterday. People. He said that was five Memorial Stadiums. Memorial Stadium Memorial Stadium is the football arena. Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, the football stadium, stadium for, uh, for the UC Cal- Berkeley. Yeah, for the and he said that's five stadiums but so five football stadiums of people worth at this free concert yeah. so if you can picture what that looks like it's insane and again uh if you watch gimme shelter by the mazels yeah um the mazels brothers it is an incredible scene and one more uh one of the i guess we'll source out right now um Mostly we got my account from Altamont, the book by Joel Selvin. Altamont, the Rolling Stones, the Hells Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day is what my sourcing is for the majority of this, as well as um, a bunch of scenes from Gimme Shelter. I was going to say, we just yeah, we just watched Gimme Shelter, so that's fresh in our minds. Um, and then I... Um, can also uh, name drop. So uh, I, there's three articles that I read today. One is uh, Remembering Meredith Hunter, The Fan Killed at Altamont. This was published by Rolling Stone, but it's an excerpt from the upcoming book. Sorry, I think it was published in 2017. Just a Shot Away uh, by Saul Austerlitz. Uh, there's also a Medium article by Dennis Yesko from April 2020 called The Short Life and Tragic Death of Meredith Hunter. And then there's also a New Yorker article from March 2019 called The Chaos of Altamont and the Murder of Meredith Hunter by Sasha Freire-Jones. So so without further ado, we're going to get into the day and the life. A li- there's not a ton on there's Meredith not a lot Hunter. Of inf- these are like said. the articles I could find. And when you, he, you know, his Wikipedia page is just about his his death really I, i'm very personally like very over the whole narrative of him just being this crazy guy on acid who pulled a gun it's so unfair, or on speed yeah. rather it's, who it's pulled a gun horrifying and um so we're gonna go now go into meredith hunter a little bit more so you can actually humanize him and understand that yes he is a guy who did pull a gun but there's this his whole life led up to this. And also, you know, He's just because you're on drugs and you pull a gun and you're 18 years old, it's not a, it's not a death sentence. Yeah. So, and he tragically, I learned today had an unmarked grave until 2006. Yeah. That's which, which is just a further testimony shocking. to how his identity was sort of erased from yeah. this rock and from this moment, you know, in history. It's and like I'll, his dude, identity I'll, is we'll not get a lot more into this during the podcast, but let's just kind of understand Meredith Hunter sure. a little bit more. Um, so I'll start with a quote by, from the Medium article by Dennis Yesko. Um, Meredith Hunter Jr. had a tough childhood. His mother was a sex worker that suffered from schizophrenia, and he was named after his father, a Native American who abandoned the family when Hunter was young. According to Joel Selvin, your guy, author of The, Ro- the yeah. Rolling Stones, Hells Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. Um, Hunter's older, older sister, Dixie, took responsibility for raising him as a child uh hunter kept pigeons as pets and loved driving a car scooter 
<laughs> um, so a little more about Meredith. So sorry, Meredith Hunter. So sometimes I'll refer to him as Meredith and sometimes Hunter. Uh, he's six foot two at age 18. So he's kind of tall. Um, so he's an 18 year old from Berkeley, California, nicknamed Murdoch, which we believe is his hyphenated last name. Yeah, his hyphenated name is Meredith Hunter Murdoch. Yeah, and described by friends as a flashy dresser with a big afro. Uh, he's comfortable. He has a certain confidence to himself and Ladies a swagger. <laughs> yeah, his girlfriend is um, 17 year old Patty Brown. Uh, they are an interracial couple. Um, he also loves wearing wide-brimmed hats and colorful jackets, uh, sometimes with matching nail polish. And I'll say it again because I think it was a good quote, but um, Meredith Hunter and Mick Jagger walked so that Harry Styles could run. This whole <laughs> men wearing, you know, yeah. flamboyant outfits and dresses and nail I remember, polish. Is, I remember it's been like uh, the whole emo scene. when yeah. I, when I was growing up playing music when I was 14, it would be Azrael, the uh, my old like sort of regrettable rock and roll band, and we would be yeah. playing with a bunch of emo and screamo bands, and all those dudes would have like Hella eyeshadow eyeliner. and yeah. make not shadow, what is it, eyeliner and yeah. um, you know nail polish and everything, yeah. and I thought that was just a recent thing, but it turned out oh, that we've been doing yeah people have been uh, wearing nail sorry. Men and boys have been wearing nail polish for quite a long oh, time. Oh yeah, David Bowie's out. another yeah. pioneer of that thing, That's and, true. and Kurt Cobain wearing a dress at a at, yeah whatever he, concert mean, that was. He wore a and dress Kid during Cuddy a lot of concerts. Kid just wore a dress concerts. during yeah. SNL. Do you think that was? A th- it was. He said it was in tribute to Kurt oh, Cobain. That's yeah. so nice. Yeah, it was like the same dress. Almost. It was a very similar dress. It was yeah. like a white floral dress. It's very. It's gorgeous. They both look great in it. The people I was talking to about that, they're like, "No, he just does that stuff." I'm like, "I'm pretty sure it was a tribute to Kurt Cobain." He's like, "No, he just does that stuff." I'm like. Okay. Yeah, like, there's. I don't know anything about Kid Cudi, so I just no. There's articles about I it, and, like, and he has a Kurt Cobain tattoo and stuff. Nice. I'm pretty sure. Dude, I want a Kurt Cobain tattoo. Love Do Kurt it. Cobain. All, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to. Do it. No one's stopping you. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm gonna do it. All right. So we're in December 1969. Um, Meredith is in Berkeley. Um, he hears these rumors that the Rolling Stones are going to do a free concert. Um, and he's trying to keep track of where that's going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so here's a quote from the, uh, Saul Austerlitz book in the Rolling Stones article. Um, 18 year old Meredith Hunter told his sister Dixie, he was thinking of attending. He'd been to the Monterey jazz festival and we're not sure if that's like a typo for Monterey Pop Festival or it's actually, he went to the Monterey jazz festival. Uh, I can it do could a be, quick Google. yeah, Monterey oh, okay. jazz festival. And enjoyed himself and hoped for another glorious day of sunshine and good vibes and music. He did not much care for the Rolling Stones, but the, or he didn't really care about the Rolling Stones. That wasn't his main draw. Uh, but the idea of soaking in the love and warmth and companionship that came from hundreds of thousands of well-meaning young people gathered together was too tempting to pass up. So... Really quick, there was Monterey Jazz Festival. It was founded in 1958. Oh, so, so that's it's t- totally very possible, it. and it was cool. in September 1969. So I think it's very possible. So does the Monterey? He went to the Monterey Jazz the Festival. Mon- yeah. Okay, cool. Because as we know, the Monterey Pop Festival was also phenomenal, but that was two years prior. Okay, so his oldest sister Dixie, who basically raised him. Um, so here's another quote. So Dixie reminded of her rides on her recently deceased husband's truck and the burning crosses she had seen out the passenger window told him told meredith meredith it wasn't safe in the outer fringes of alameda county so we know alameda county includes oakland and berkeley right oakland berkeley and a bunch of other and a bunch of other cities yeah um so you know the more east you get 
uh, sort of the more conservative conservative, I guess. Become, so, yeah. so, and here's back to the quote, violent racism was still alive and well in America and Meredith was too naive, maybe too trusting to see it. Uh, Dixie says, you do not need to be out there. She told him firmly, their family had long known that as African-Americans, you were treated differently wherever you went. You were held to a mysterious standard, one whose rules you often would not know until you'd been accused of breaking them. So, all right. So Meredith is pretty receptive to his sister's comments of like, you know, be careful, you know, you shouldn't be here, you're being naive, but he still wants to go. He's still going to go. So he tells her, you know, um, I'm just going to, I'm going to bring a gun with me. And it, there's, I guess his sister teases him that like, oh, you probably don't even have bullets for that gun, but you know, maybe it's a good, uh, scare tactic, um, for quote, anyone who tries to pick on a black teenager at a rock and roll show. Um, so Meredith has got a plan. <laughs> He's like, I'll be all right if I, if I bring something to defend myself, if things get weird, but you know, the Monterey jazz festival was like such a hippie love fest. Woodstock was apparently great. So, you know, I'm sure it'll be just like that. So he calls up his girlfriend, Patty, and he tells her, Hey, I'm, I'm planning on going to this free stones concert in the East Bay. They just announced the location. Like I'm going, let's go. And like to entice her further, uh, he (laughs) says, I'm also going to get to borrow, uh, my mom's boyfriend, Charles, um, when he sh- says his mom, is he talking about Dixie? Or no, he- I think he's talking about his actual his mom, actual who, mom, whose name I think is Altha. Um, so he calls her up and he says, hey, I can borrow uh, Charles's uh, 65 champagne-colored Mustang. And so Patty's nice. like, all right, let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> Dude, I'd, I'd hop in that champagne <laughs> it's Mustang. It's like, okay. I'd be like, Meredith, yes. Yes, you'd be into it. Yeah, so Meredith... Um, he dresses in his favorite lime green suit uh, with a black silk button down undershirt. And we'll, po- we'll post a photo. It's gorgeous. Him. Well, there's yeah. a photo. Well, there's a photo of him at the Altamont in the like a screenshot. But there's also a photo of him that's in the Rolling Stones. That might article. have been from the jazz festival. That might have been from the jazz festival. It's yeah. him, and you know, it's a different because he's wearing a green hat that matches his suit. Yeah. Um, but he that was like his favorite suit. Yeah. That was like his going out suit. Um, so he's got this lime green suit on. He's got a black broad brimmed uh, hat and then this black uh, silk button down shirt. He looks great. He looks very like uh, Temptations. He looks very Temptations crossed with like Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Like the way that Jimi Hendrix used to wear that wide brimmed hat. Yeah. Jimi was a little more hippie like with the scarves. Yeah. And, he like, had that, more like jewelry and, and like, like the pirate bohemian, shirts. More bohemian maybe. Yes. Jimi had like the pirate shirts and stuff like that. So he was more bohemian for sure. But Meredith's Meredith has more of that Temptations look, but yeah. then throw in the Jimi Hendrix uh, headwear, yeah. and that's kind of what he looked like. Yeah, and the he was big also hat. the same, maybe a little taller, but very similar build to Jimi Hendrix. Like yeah. tall, slender. Yeah, so, you know, and very, it's it's sixty nine. Yeah. So he his, looks very similar to Jimi Hendrix in my yeah, in my mind. It, and it's sixty nine. So his you know his suit is like a bell bottomy suit, which looks great. Yeah. Not not full you know seventies bell bottoms, but and, and before pretty, Jimi went to like London. He looked like that. That's what yeah. he dressed like. Aww. So it's it's a very similar look. Yeah, Meredith has style. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. And then Patty is dressed kind of. She's she's got this like long kind of straight blonde hair. She's got these little round glasses, um, and she's wearing like a macrame, uh, like a handmade by her mom. I think like little uh, coverall. She's kind of got like the flower child look going. Um, super cute. They're teenagers too. You know what look she had? She had like. To me, the look of all like the girls in the the early Beatles videos, 
Yeah. Where you're like, where she kind of had that skirt, but it like kind of goes down to the knees. Yeah, it's you know? like a long. It's like a black and white kind of yeah. kind of look, but it's also like the And girl, like a knee socks thing. Yeah, she's, yeah, it she kind of seems like a, yeah. She I seemed mean, a little more straight laced than Meredith totally. was, but she liked the world she was, he was in and yeah. was enticed yeah. and was just like, I'm a little more straight laced, but I'm willing to you know like see yeah. what's up you with. can tell she's you can just tell by her body language in the video footage that she's a little i don't want to say shy but like maybe a little naive or a little, little naive or a little more nervous, sheltered or yeah, whatever um, it might be i mean she's a 17 year old schoolgirl from berkeley yeah so she hasn't really seen a lot of what's going on I outside mean, of the what super have, liberal what did bay we area see when we were in 17 like dude yeah so all right, so um, all right, so they're decked out. Um, they champagne they get Mustang. in the champagne sixty five Mustang, yes. and they head towards Altamont. Um, and they probably get stuck in a ton of traffic. We don't know. Um, and park at some point. Um, so they go to the concert. They get a they get a spot pretty up front. Um, and they start to see at this point. Um, so here's another quote from the. Uh, Rolling Stone article. Uh, they watched helplessly as the bikers used their pool cues as truncheons, <laughs> beating fans who had violated the unspoken rules of proximity to the Hells Angels. I like that sentence. Beating fans who'd violated unspoken rules. Like people are just like getting beat and they're like, what are we doing wrong? Like the Hells yeah. Angels just keep pushing them back. Yeah. And you can see in the footage that it's like pretty unprovoked and just kind of like confusing. Uh, the footage, I think the only thing they were trying to do is get to the stage and the angels at that Push point had made stage. a proclamation to each other. This is our stage. So they they became. Um, this is before the bikes are surrounding. By the way, this is yeah, daytime. They, yeah, they became territorial about the stage as if it was like their motorcycle or their clubhouse or yeah. or another angel. Like they were treating the stage like it belonged to them. So yeah. they were they, they defending cared, yeah. the. They stage. were defending the stage more than they were defending but the they musicians because, as we know, they were beating the musicians. <laughs> They were defending the stage with violence. Yeah, that, exactly. that was it. They were defending. So th the stage this was with happening. Violence. You know, uh, the Jefferson Airplane lead singer got beat up. They saw that. They saw the Hell's Angels just beating people with pool cues. I'll get back to the quote. Uh, Bredehoff, so Patty, was particularly troubled by the bland announcements that kept coming from the stage, asking the audience to calm down and be cool. It wasn't the audience causing the trouble in the first place, she thought. So they're yeah. just watching the Hells Angels just beating people in the front of the crowd, just like pushing, pushing. And then people are getting on stage and going like, hey, audience, everyone be cool. And the audience is like, well, well do you see what's happening? People, are, like, people on stage are just as scared of the Angels as everyone else. So, yeah. And it, it's completely... Uh, evident of this because during the Jefferson Airplane set, if you watch Gimme Shelter, um, the I think it's the bass player is saying, I'd like to, th and we are a little confused by the, the quote until sarcastic. you really see it. And yeah. we, and admittedly, I hadn't watched Gimme Shelter when I said this last week, but um, he was like, I'd like to thank the angels for doing that. And I thought that was more just reading the quote without context yeah the I was angels like, punched our lead singer and yeah, i'd like to thank them for that i'd like to thank them for that and i and when i was seeing that just written down i thought it had to do with like the the divide between marty balin and the rest of the airplane that no, was happening they were at the they time. were pissed they, no, were, they were they were pissed and they're yeah. like you just knocked out our lead singer and so the bass player for airplane uh jefferson airplane goes you know i'd like 
we hear that the Hell's Angels just knocked out our lead singer, and I'd like yeah. to thank him for that. And then you see one of the Hell's Angels on the side of the stage put his beer like he's like, "What are you fucking talking?" He's like, "Are you you're talking to us?" Like he has that look. Yeah. So he goes to another microphone on the stage. Yeah, he goes to the lead singers that they just beat up. Yeah, microphone. and he starts talking back to the guys. Like he's like, "You're you talking, talking to, to my me, people." Man? He's you're like, talking, "You're talking to my to me, people," man? and he's like. No, I'm talking about the guys who beat up my lead singer. And he's like, well, you're talking about my people then. Yeah. And so then you can really just see that it is not the artist stage. It is not the Rolling Stones yeah. stage. And they're not, they're not the protecting the artist. Stage. They're yeah. just protecting the Hells Angels, their bikes, like you said, the stage. Yeah. And Grace Slick is in this position where she's like... She has her hands in her pocket. She's like... She's pissed, but she's like got the mic and she's going, hey, everyone be cool. And then she's realizing that she has to be like diplomatic so she's like um you know the angels have to keep people in line and that's fine but you know we can't be you know bashing people in the face and like yeah she's trying she's really trying you can see she's trying not to be like hey like and then the the bass player says hey you don't he's talking to the hell's angels he's like you don't have to stand on the stage no one's hassling us he's like the crowd isn't fucking trying to fuck with us you guys are like so that's the vibe so meredith and patty are watching this at a close distance and um Um, patty is is looking at it and she's like i don't think it's the yeah i think it's just the angels who are doing this why do they keep announcing the audience to be cool like we're being cool yeah we're, we're being totally cool um so at some point they take a break um and patty and meredith head back to the to the 65 mustang that's parked and patty's like i want to get the fuck out of here um i don't like the vibe i don't i think we should just go um, so Meredith, uh, unlocks the trunk and removes the Smith and Wesson, which we're not, it's unclear if it's loaded or not. Like yeah. there's a quote I that his sister was, I haven't seen anything that said it was loaded, but yeah, I, it might've said it in the book, but I honestly well, his, don't remember. His sister was, you know, teasing him like, Oh, you don't even have bullets for that. Like, you know, that's what she said. So he might not have, but he was it's like, well, possible, you know, yeah. if I'm getting fucked with, um, going to like this big rock and roll show, if I get messed with as a black teenager, then I want to have something to defend myself. And he just saw all the violence that was happening. And he's just seen all the ha- violence. So and he's, he's like, like, I think I should grab um, this. Like, dude, I, I think don't want to get beat yeah, up. Let's, let's remember th- he didn't have it on him yeah. during Jefferson airplane set. He didn't have it on him during, you know, the whole day of seeing all this shit go down. But uh, he said, so, so he unlocks the trunk and removes the Smith and Wesson. He puts it in his jacket pocket and Patty goes, what's that? What are you doing? And Meredith says, "It's this is the quote, it's just to protect myself. They're getting really bad, referring to the Hells Angels. They're pushing people off the stage and beating people up. Um, so yeah, at this point, they've they've already witnessed all this just like pool cues, just beating people and all this thing. But they still want to be close to the stage because Meredith is like, hey, the stones are coming up it's we should go rolling it's stones. the rolling stones and They're the we, biggest band in the and world and we have a good spot that we're gonna get back to they're gonna get right back to the front of the stage yeah. somehow i don't know how but because they're at the car like he's like let's just go right back to our spot and like it's fine i'm gonna have this in my pocket in case shit goes down i can like you know this will be my like hey, hey hey don't fuck with me i have this and uh and they go back to the concert all right um so at this point i'm going to Get, are you are you done with the Meredith Hunter thing? Yeah, Patty right. wants to leave. She's not having a good time. Meredith wants to stay. Uh, Meredith wants to stay and get their spot close to the stage. Rolling Stones are about to go on, and they make their way back to the stage. That's where so we're. So that's pretty much where we're converging on um, our two stories coming together. And at this point, I want to give like a graphic violent uh, violence rather warning about this section because it is going to detail Trigger a lot warning. of violence. So, um, 
if that's something you're not into, then you should definitely, you know, yeah. maybe listen to one of our episodes about Justin Towns Earl or about John well, Moreland. That's a sad one. <laughs> but we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come right back yeah. and we're going to finish uh, the story about Altamont and the Rolling Stones and Meredith Hunter. Sounds good. God. Back in the saddle. All right. right. So Meredith Hunter, that's the story of him. And uh, now... At this point, back on the Rolling Stones' perspective, they're kind of in their trailer. Just uh, they're hearing whispers of things, but mm-hmm. they don't really they other than Mick Jagger being punched in the face right when they land. Right. They Which, don't really oof. know what's going on. Yeah, it's a good welcome um, to Altamont. Like this is the vibe. Yeah, <laughs> hey, this is the vibe. And there was a there was a young girl. She was like eight or nine, who was someone's daughter backstage, and she was uh, drawing all over Keith Richards' arms, mm. and uh, she you know, gets kicked out of the trailer by Sam Cutler. What? He's and such uh, an Keith asshole. comes out of the bathroom and, and he's like, where'd the girl go? And uh, Sam goes, oh, we kicked her out. And, she, and he was like, well, you should bring her back. She's the only good thing about this whole oh, scene. Yeah, he's like, this vibe is bad. So it's they know that low. something's bad. Why is Sam Cutler cutting, kicking out a child? He's just trying to get people... <laughs> He's just trying to get people out of the trailer. Got like, it. Okay. it. I don't think he was being an asshole. Like, let me ruin this girl's. Can I? Can day I? Can I whatever. just give one more Sam Cutler yeah. moment before we go forward? Sure. Like from watching Give Me Shelter, there's a moment where um, it's between acts, so they're just like doing stage stuff, yeah. and the audience is being pretty chill, and everything's fine, and this guy comes up, and it's unclear who he is or what's happening, but he's like, "Hey, this dude's freaking out. We we need help. Like, we need like." we need to get him to the medical tent or whatever. Like we need help from like whatever. I, I don't know the situation, but Sam Cutler says tough shit. And the guy's like tough shit. This guy's freaking out. It's really bad. Yeah. Like this is a really bad situation. And then Sam Cutler goes into this weird speech about like, look man, if you like bring, he's like, there's however many thousand people he guesses is there. And he's like, if you keep bringing on bummer after bummer and you just make this a whole bummer thing, like so, people are going to get really bad. And it's just so like, I've got a little bit of backstory for that whole situation. I hate, I'm so, watching it. You're like, Ooh, it's so tough. first of all, in defense of Sam Cutler, I don't think he's a hero in this by any means, no. but in defense of him, he knows that it is not in his control at all at this point. Yeah. And he's trying to maintain an air of like, I'm in charge here. Yeah. But he, he's not in charge. And no, he honestly doesn't know charge. what the fuck is going on. Yeah. He, there are no medical tents available yeah. to him yeah. or anyone else. People I mean, are freaking out and having and these so really he's like, uh, scary tough shit, man. Like yeah. I, I can't help you. Yeah. And what he, where he did error in my opinion is, when that guy was talking to him about the acid trips, yeah, the, they didn't. They kind of cut out the context in the movie. Well, he's like, he's freaking but out. He I mean, you can tell. You need to, he was saying you need to tell the audience that there's bad acid. Oh, he was like, you need to go on the mic and tell people that you shouldn't drink the wine because there's bad acid everywhere. Yeah, this guy's and, like trying to be. <laughs> and Sam Cutler's like, look, man, I'm not going to go on stage and tell. Everyone, everyone that there's bad acid everywhere. Yeah, and everyone because he doesn't it'll want be too much everyone of a to freak out. Okay. And yeah. so that's the backstory to that. Yeah. It, it's he's not still that kind he, of a dick about it. Though. It is a <laughs> like I said, he's trying to like maintain any yeah, control. It's, that it's he complete can. madness. Yeah. So complete I, I have madness. a hard time blaming Sam Cutler for this. I think. Especially, I don't blame him for all of this, but I, I think I, he was kind of an asshole in tough. the movie. He wasn't yeah. a great figure in the movie, but. Um, 
I do kind of view him as someone who is thrust into a position of power that had very little experience. Yeah. Like we got into his history, I think in the second episode, maybe yeah. the first episode even. Mm. And, um, his experience was very limited. He was like a school teacher in, up until he was like 25. And then he went to London to become, you know, a music guy and got escalated all the way to tour manager for the Rolling Stones within like a year and a half. Yeah. So this is a kid, like someone who's seven, eight years younger than me, yeah. planning the biggest rock, maybe not the longest rock tour, but the biggest rock tour. I mean, they were using lights that no one's ever seen before. There were crowds no one's ever seen before. And this is what yeah. he's planning as a 20, you know, something year old dude. Yeah, but just so, know when you're in over your head, man. Yeah. <laughs> which is why which is why I like, think he was so viciously trying to hold like on to stubborn. the power he that he like, had yeah. because he's like I can't relinquish control to anybody else because this thing is already Out of control. on the cusp. And I love a quote that he had later. Um he's like talking about Meredith Hunter, he's like, I can't believe anyone would bring a gun to a rock concert. And then it was at, at that moment that he realized that he had brought a gun to a rock concert as well because he carried a gun on him wherever he went. Yeah. So Interesting. So kind of a funny, <laughs> kind of a, he also He's prepares, like, I mean, I had one, but. Yeah, so he didn't realize like, oh yeah, it's batshit crazy to, to be the guy at the rock concert with the gun. Mm -hmm. But here I am, the guy at the rock concert with the gun every night. Yeah. So it just kind of goes to show that maybe he's not very self-aware as like a 27-year-old British guy, guy who's yeah. just fucking thrust into this role. So anyway, Tension, Sam Cutler, tensions are Jesus. So Sam Cutler, he he's no hero of this story, I no. don't think. No, no but heroes. He got story. he got I think the heroes and I said it last episode People at the medical tents. Yep. Superheroes. And there's a few heroes that we're going to mention um, coming up. Yeah. But there were a lot of bad decisions. And um, anyway, Sam Cutler, at the point of the Hells, Ang the Hells Angels escorting the, the Rolling Stones to, to the, the stage, stage, you can just see the energy depleted from Sam Cutler who's on like a three day bender of like cocaine and yeah. fucking downers and alcohol and he's on he's on one yeah. and um, he, you can see him just completely drained from the whole situation hadn't had control the whole concert tried to assert control didn't have it yeah well and he's standing by when again like and there's a great we talked about it a little last time but we just watched it there's a great scene where the Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia, um, is like walking from their helicopter and the drummer for Santana, who, yeah. if you've watched, Dad, if you're listening, if you've watched the uh, the Santana set from Woodstock, the super young kid drummer, yeah. he's like 16, 17. This was months earlier too. Like yeah. when, when they were at Woodstock, that was just a few short months earlier. I think it was June. Yeah. So And he, always, he already looks a little older and he's talking, and you recognize him because he's got that kind of like... Uh, you know, his note. He's just a recognizable guy. And he's talking to Jerry Garcia and he says, yeah, man, they they beat up Marty. And Jerry goes, they're beating musicians? Or sorry, the other uh, Grateful Dead guy says, they're oh, they're beating musicians? And he's like, yeah, man, it's weird. Like, it's really weird. Yeah. And that's when the fucking Grateful Dead leave. Yeah, the Grateful Dead are like, see ya. Uh, and they're just like, bye. So when the Rolling Stones make their way to the stage, all that Sam Cutler can say is the Rolling Stones. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. 
he's so, so depleted. He's, he's so like, depleted. yeah, he's like, fuck. He's so like, they, please, let's just get through this shit. Like, so right when they start, right when they start playing, I think they play a couple of numbers, and then they start playing "Sympathy for the Devil." Yeah. And at this point, Sonny Barger, who's on the stage, he's pissed at Mick Jagger. They just had like a summit meeting where it was like Sonny Barger, Mick Jagger, Sam Cutler. The the dead's gone, so they're, none of those guys. Yeah. And they're like, "So what are we doing here? Like, no one is in control." Yeah. And no one knows who's in control. So Sonny Barger's like, "This is fucking stupid." Yeah. So he's real pissed drinking beer on the stage they ask him to escort um the stones out and he's like nah fuck that i have no interest in that wow the hell's angels end up escorting them anyway Mm -hmm. through like the mass of people but at this point he's just sitting on the stage kind of brooding and drinking beer and he sees smoke coming up from one of the motorcycles ahead in front of the stage and some poor guy is like leaning on the seat of the motorcycle so it's like causing a a crowd and they just decided to park their fucking motorcycles in this crowd it's it's so, just they're just asking for an excuse. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's a tactic that they'd used in the past to like kind of blockade the the audience, but it didn't work in this. There were just too many people. And so he sees this guy leaning on his bike and he tries to yell at him, but obviously you can't hear him over the music. So they go and they start beating this dude and beating him off uh the the motorcycle and you can see the aftermath of this there's an angel like picking up the bike and like trying to pop the handlebar back on in um the movie give me shelter um but they just start laying waste to the audience and you can see everyone backing up giving peace oh yeah everyone's just giving the peace signs like hey man like what the fuck are we doing it's crazy it's like it's like when a mosh pit opens up you yeah, know, and that's like how today's. that's how big the uh, I use I wrote down mosh pit too when oh, I was watching funny. Give Me yeah. Shelter. I was like, it looks like it looks like a mosh because there's such a huge amount of space between like the front of the stage and the audience at this point because the Hell's Angels are just beating people. Yeah, and if people don't know what a mosh pit is, just Google it. Um, you know, so, one, of, one <laughs> of the thing that's that's like so say. troubling, like just putting yourself in an audience member perspective, like. I'm sure we've all been close to the stage and in a lot of situations like, so the hell's angels are at the stage front and they're sort of fighting anybody that's in the front of the crowd. Yes. But as somebody that's been in the front of the crowd and been pushed, like you're not really in control. You have a crowd yeah. of 300,000 people behind you. You're in the front row to the yeah. stage. You're, you're getting pushed from behind. Yeah. So people are getting pushed towards the hell's angels and the hell's angels are retaliating. Yeah. And it's just like this, and the people, 20 people back don't know what's going on at the front of the line that they're like slightly pushing at. It's just a recipe for disaster. Like you can't. So this poor yeah. soul is getting his ass beat. 10 angels rush into the crowd. I'm sure they're looking at people the whole time. They're like, I don't like the way you look. I don't like the way you look. Oh, you can see in the you dock, know. they look angry at everyone. They look angry as fuck at Mick Jagger. Yeah. They're like glaring at Mick Jagger. Yeah. So they see this happen. They're out for blood. They at this go point. into the crowd, start smashing people with pull cues and whatnot. And this is when Jagger runs over to Keith, who's like the only one who's still playing. And, and he's, he's like, like, "Hey, man, you got to stop. I, cool I'm going to control this." Yeah, he's like, "If cool you stop playing, we can stop the fighting." So Jagger tries to cool down the situation, he's trying to you know tell everyone to sit down, and it was just hopeless. And yeah, uh, just in keep. The, just keep well when he first gets on stage he says oh babies there's so many of you just keep cool down in front and don't push around just keep still keep together and then when they turn off the music he's going i think he's saying um when he cuts uh keith's playing i think he says something like uh 
uh, we all have to be together. We're all together or something like that. You know, he's really trying, just like Grace Slick was posed with. It's like, you have the microphone. All hell is breaking loose. What are you going to say to bring peace to the situation? Yeah. It's an impossible task. So he was trying to calm down the situation, and it seemed to be one of the first times in Mick Jagger's career that he was unable to control a crowd. Because usually with the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger is one of the greatest frontmen in rock and roll history. Yeah. I don't think it's debatable. He, he always controlled a crowd. So this was one of the only times, if you know, Definitely, probably the first time, unless it's way back when he was like learning how to be a frontman or whatever. Yeah. But this is one of the first times that he's ever lost control of an audience. Yeah, and he's like he's desperately trying to get it back. He's desperately trying, and you can see there's a great moment in the film where you know the audience is right up to the stage, and you can see their faces clearly. They're well lit. You know, he's like three feet away from these audience members that have been here through the whole thing. And Mick Jagger is singing and he's doing his performance. And you can see these audience members that look really like forlorn and upset. There's one guy just shaking There's his head. There's one girl crying. There's one girl crying. And like, they're just kind of like trying, they're like mouthing. The guy mouthing. is saying, you've got to stop this. The guy is like, mouthing to Mick Jagger. He's three feet from Mick yeah. Jagger. And he's like, you, these, <laughs> these kind of hippie guys, they're like, hey, you got to stop. And they look really concerned. Yeah. It's like, just picture any like, emergency situation like someone's like in your face like hey hey like we have to help they're yeah. doing that and Mick Jagger is just confused he, he well, can't he, hear them he goes out of his spell because like when Mick Jagger's like in, in his like dancing yeah he's dancing and you can see him dancing in sympathy, sympathy for the devil mm -hmm. he's dancing and getting into it and then he stops like dead in his tracks and, and he, he has he a sees really a beating going yeah, on concerned face and he just has a concerned look and that's when the guy is like looking at him like, dude, like things are bad. And they're, all just, they're looking at him and they're shaking and their so head and they're looking back and they're like, bad Mick things are happening. Keeps dancing after that. Yeah. So he does, after yeah, that he song um, and it and that song did stop once, started up again. And after that, um, an angel, I think it was Animal, the same guy that uh, beat up Marty Balin earlier. He the has, guy uh, with the I think it's stupid, the coyote. I, yeah, he's like I, a coyote. I, I was trying to figure out what animal it was head. on his head, but I think it's, it's a coyote a skin. Fox or coyote or something. It's a fox or coyote, yeah. And he uh, he grabs the mic away from Mick Jagger. And this just yeah. further proves that the, the Stones do not own the stage. This isn't no. the Stones show. It's not Sam Cutler's show. It's not the Grateful Dead show, Jefferson Airplane. This is... This is the, the hell's angels, angels have taken over. The control. angels have completely taken yeah. over, and so their he, only allegiance is to other angels yeah. and their bikes. And he starts they don't give a fuck that's Mick Jagger. Yeah, he starts threatening the audience and telling them that the music is going to end if they don't chill out and uh, whatever that means. And now yeah. it was you know it's completely clear whose stage it was. Um, so they play a few cool down numbers, some blues songs, really trying yeah. to get the crowd to sit down. And, and that out. happens for a while. Yeah, it's looking but good for a minute. But then they start playing Under My Thumb. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the peaceful blues music, and this isn't what the crowd necessarily came to see from the Stones. They came to see the, the hits, the bangers. Yeah. So Under My Thumb is one of those songs. So when that starts to happen... Everyone gets up and they're like, "Oh shit, they're playing under my excited thumb. again." Yeah, they're excited and they get up and they start pushing again to the stage. Yeah. So Meredith, Hunter, and Patty were very close to the front of the stage. Yeah, you can see him in a lot of the film uh, before. They're they're to the left, and he's got this bright lime yeah. green coat on. So 
it is important to note that that Meredith was definitely on speed at this point. And you can kind of see him, his tongue's moving around in his mouth. And if you've ever seen someone on like amphetamines before, you know that that's kind of how their, how their mouth moves. Yeah. But honestly, compared to the kind of behavior we're seeing from audience members that are like on having bad acid trips up to them is like more controlled. He's he's like, honestly like blending in with everyone yeah. like everyone's fucked up there's some people like there's the completely naked girl that's like slapping people and like yeah. trying to make her way to the stage yeah, and like yeah. there's like all these kind of horrific people my point is like it's he's not singled out as like oh this guy's on this no, guy's really fucked yeah, up no. he's like he's in the middle ground of people that so are fucked up he's, like everybody's he's fucked, fucked up fucked for up. sure but he's not out of control. No, so he's apparently not out of control. he tried to climb on the stage earlier, got kicked off, and I think he was probably all already being eyeballed by the Hell's Angels at this point for honestly probably just being in, in an interracial couple and being a flashy oh, sure. black guy at the in the I'm sure. in the crowd. Yeah. So he then tries to prevent people from climbing on the stage. Yeah. So he starts grabbing people off the stage, kind of help i don't want to say helping the hell's angels but trying to like get help, people, help people from getting to hurt just not get hurt yeah. yeah pulling people off the stage and um an angel grabbed him from behind by the hair by and the by ear, the ear, ear yeah ear. the hair and by the ear and just pulled him Yanks off him the stage or away from the stage even further and um, when Meredith kind of turned to scowl at him, because of course that's what you do You're when like, you get, dude, I'm trying to get when you get off your ear stage. pulled. Yeah. Uh, the angel just smashed him in the face. Uh, he fell near the stage backwards, and then four or five angels compiled themselves on top of him and started punching and beating him and he's trying to scurry away back into the crowd but they're grabbing him and throwing him on the ground and at this point he he pulls the gun from his waistband and uh this is when 22 year old 22 year old hell's angel um alan passaro from san jose um he has a long track record of burglary and violence spanning his entire life um a natural athlete just very, very quick. Um, he, for example, this man got his Harley by answering a wanted ad, showing up and beating the man senseless and taking the bike. So this guy's that, a this guy is animal. a true, like, hardened criminal, yeah. basically. Burglar. He's been in a, a thousand fights. He's this guy, 22 years old. Um he sees that the angels are beating up Murdoch Hunter and um and uh, sorry Meredith Hunter Murdoch so what he does is he grabs a knife out of his boot because they had uh, knives that were kind of tied around their calves mm-hmm. and he tie- he takes that out and in I mean he was a uh, definitely very quick to react to this violence. He flies off the stage and you can see it in the, uh, the video, the video, which I like. they compared it to the Zagruder film by JFK. Like this was oh. the, the guy who filmed it. This was his Zagruder moment. They called oh, it in the book. And, um, he, he stabbed him in the neck 
and immediately um, Meredith drops a gun and tries to flee. He's he's beyond Starts fleeing running. at this point. Um, Can I read a quick quote? Yeah, sure. From the uh, about this moment from the uh, the Rolling Stone article, Meredith sure. Hunter was in flight from the Hells Angels who had beaten him. He had watched the pool cues raining down on concert goers all day, had seen the manic glee with which the bikers had beaten others for the crime of enjoying themselves. He had undoubtedly noticed as well the viciousness with which the angels had singled out other African-Americans. What thoughts must have surged through his mind in the moments during which he desperately sought to escape their frenzied grip and frenzied is the right word. Yeah. It's, it's a frenzy and it's, it's a, it's an attack. So they, yeah. uh, Alan Pissarro stabs him, I think four or five times in the neck. And, and he, yeah. he says later that he wasn't sure if he actually connected with the knife the first few times, but he knows he stabbed him. He didn't, he doesn't know how many times he connected, but he understands that he stabbed him. Um, and this was just the beginning of the assault and, and yeah, murder. The stabbing is the beginning. Of Hunter. Yeah. He claps to his knees. Um, an angel kicks him in the head, yeah. and he f- and he uh, fell to the ground face up. He screamed, "I wasn't going to shoot you!" And another angel yells back at him, "Then why did you have a gun?" Again, he doesn't have a gun at this point. So the the an important thing to know is like they've got Meredith on the ground. There's five of them. He's, he's, been already, sta- been stabbed he's already been stabbed. Times. He doesn't have his gun. He's not a threat. This should be over. So they're, so another angel screams at him, why did you have a gun? And they're just kicking him, soccer kicking him in the head. Um, so one of the angels grabs a trash can, which is just a cardboard box in a metal frame. So he picks up this metal frame and, and slams it on his head um, repeatedly. Jesus. So they're stomping him. Uh, Pissarro had already stabbed him. He he uh, he was completely unconscious at this point, and uh, all the angels kind of walk back after uh, Pissarro grabs his knife. He shoves it in the ground to clean it off, and then he puts it back in his sheath. Uh, sheath. Um, he walks away, and Patty pleads with them. Like, uh, you know, please don't hurt him anymore. They shove her back in the crowd. So they also shove her uh, harshly. And uh, a man, one of the main witnesses of this, Paul Cox, the concert goer. Yeah. He went to help uh, the just completely broken uh, Meredith Hunter. And the angels tell him he's dying. Just let him die. So Paul... And another concert goer. He's gonna goer, die anyway. Don't touch um, him. He's gonna die. Anyway. Yeah, they say don't touch him. He's gonna die anyway. Let just let him. You know, let him. Let him be. So they go and they try to inspect his wounds. This is when they discover yeah, Paul, that he, Paul Cox is a sort of hero in this. He he's the concert goer that uh, flips over Meredith and then starts yeah. carrying him toward the stage. Yeah, and we're we're gonna get there. Um, Sorry. So he opens up their shirt to inspect the wounds and. This is when they realize that he's been stabbed and he's just like completely covered in blood. So they, they're like, we need to get him help immediately. So, mm-hmm. so Paul Cox and this other concert goer pick him up and they carry him to the stage to, mm-hmm. to, in hopes that they can take him to the medical staff. To get the Rolling Stones' attention. Because they're, they're still playing under my thumb, I think. Yeah, they are. So they carry him and drop him right in front of Keith Richards. Oh, God. And, uh, 
Keith was just completely panicked at the scene. He's like, what the fuck is going on? And he sees this man just being dropped in front of him who's covered still, in blood. Completely still. And completely still. And um, and uh, at this point, the angels on the stage just run up and kick Meredith's body back <laughs> off the stage. So disgusting. Um, Fucking animals, dude. Yeah, and... <laughs> As he fell off the stage, it just happened that he fell into the arms of Dr. Robert Hyatt, who was a first-year resident at the Public Health Hospital of San Francisco. And and Dr. Robert Hyatt is definitely a hero in this story. Oh. He single-handedly carries this six-foot-two man's body, who's still barely alive at this, at this time. He carries him all the way by himself to the medical tent. Wow, which he, is probably nowhere he near the He collapses once he gets there, having op- he's shit. operating on pure adrenaline, and his arms hurt. He said his arms hurt for a week afterwards because he was carrying it's not, this not guy. not an amount of weight he could usually to carry. To the medical tent. Wow. So Meredith Hunter was alive at this time and struggling to breathe. Um, he was put on a stretcher and loaded into the back of a station wagon and driven to another medical tent. Oh, God. Dr. Fine realized uh, that this is going to require immediate medical surgery, and he he needed to be airlifted. It was yeah. the only way there, to save there's him. There's no way we can get him out of here. The traffic, everything. Yeah. Just, and even if there was nothing else, if this were just in the middle of an empty field. Without 300,000 people, without cars. If he wasn't you airlifted get, yeah, you couldn't get. to medical surgery immediately, yeah. he was going to die. So... He goes to the helicopters and he's like, we need to get this guy airlifted. And the pilot refuses to take off because his orders are, you are only flying the Rolling Stones out of this concert. So he's like, if you find someone, if you basically find someone who's, you know, a top ranking official enough to tell me that. I can fly without the Rolling Stones. I'll do it. But until then, I'm not doing it. So despite the fact that the only way Meredith Hunter was going to live was if, and maybe he wouldn't have lived anyway, but the only chance he had, only chance he had. was an airlift. And, and they, they refused refu- they to do it, it because they would only take the Rolling Stones. So Meredith Hunter died waiting for an ambulance. Is um, And there's footage... There's footage of um of him on the stretcher and there's footage of his girlfriend Patty and the the point that kind of broke me watching the documentary last night I mean it's all just gut wrenching and impossible to watch but there's a part where Patty's she's crying and she's saying um I don't want him to die and then she says this guy's trying to console her which is annoying and she's like uh they can't hear his heart they can't hear his heart and, and he's, he's, just, he's dead she's by that screaming point, that, yeah. and it's it's horrifying to watch. Yeah, so yeah. Doctor Fine pronounced him dead at six thirty p.m. It's about halfway through the Rolling Stones set, and in the background, the Stones played "Brown Sugar" to an audience for the first time in history. So while they were playing "Brown Sugar," they're now you know super famous song for the first time ever in front of yeah. a live audience. They had just recorded it previously. Meredith is lying, murdered. He, he so was dying. He was dying. Yeah. yeah. Um. So the rest of the set was just a battle of attrition, basically, for both the Stones and the audience, and they're doing their best to make it through. There are pauses. 
you know, they're telling him to cool it down. The Stones are trying to just make it through this set. It's the biggest audience they've ever played in front of. Um, they're trying to maintain control. Um, they start playing uh, Gimme Shelter, and uh, that's one of their last songs. And the, the image of a peaceful 60s concert experience like Woodstock was just sh- completely shattered. shattered in one night. Mm-hmm. There, There's... There's really no other way to say it. You know, after that, the Stones scurry. It's almost weird. After they play Gimme Shelter, it's almost like Mick thought that it their performance, because it was an incredible performance of the song, but it's almost like he felt like it erased the entire memory of what just happened. And he was just like, oh, my God, you've been amazing, blah, 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 you know, bye. And they they leave the stage and get on a helicopter and they know that it was a shit show. Yeah. So they're in the helicopter in the airport when they arrive and they're talking about like, I can't believe that we were, you know, that the hell's angels were security. Like they were like, Keith was very focused. Keith Richards, the entire night he was focused on the hell's angels being the problem. Yeah. But he's really going at it now like keith is infused the entire night they go back to the hotel they're incensed you know the next day they're also just cannot stop talking about how pissed they are about the hell's angels and about the concert the the news is starting to spread that um, someone died during it but there were also four babies born like it's so weird like the immediate um feedback from the concert was just the laziest journalism of all time. Um, there were a lot of publications that said like, oh, it was just a giant concert, blah, blah, blah. It was great. The Rolling Stones. And they were trying to like follow this like canned narrative of it being a Woodstock West. Yeah. So they just basically followed that narrative. Yeah, they're like, it was fine. It was great. We should do this again. Yeah. And it's like, ugh, that's and not... they're like, somebody died, but four babies were born. And it's Couple like... Couple people how died. Does, I mean, yeah. How does four babies being born, even if that is true, which there's actually no evidence of it actually being true, but even if four babies were born, how does that erase the fact that people died that, that day and that night? So... You actually read the Rolling Stone article that kind of cast the spotlight on Altamont, which showed everybody, oh, it wasn't Woodstock West. The 1970 article, yeah. It was a disaster. It was, So it was the Rolling Stones, and they actually did more research for that Rolling Stone article than the police did, because the police afterwards were obviously trying to solve this murder and get to the bottom of what happened. Yeah. So not only were they hitting up the Maisels brothers for footage, but they were also going to Rolling Stone and saying, hey, you talked to this guy, Paul Cox, who saw yeah. the Who, the who carried, carried Meredith's body. Well, uh, sorry, no, that was Do the, you the have doctor. his number? <laughs> that yeah. was basically what the cops did. And they're like, no, we, we got not... Because Paul Cox, yes, he was a hero at the time. And he did stick true to his testimony, but he was terrified of retribution from the angels. He was terrified of the Hells Angels. So he basically went into hiding for a long time. And finally, they were able, the police were able to coax him out of hiding and get the story from him. Because he saw everything. He thought the Hells Angels were going to murder him. I mean, 
Yeah. yeah. He was, and the Hells Angels, in all fairness, were threatening to, they, they wanted to find witnesses. And they wanted to find Rock Scully. And they wanted to find Sam Cutler. Like, they were trying to find these people. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to get into the aftermath now. I have um, some aftermath as well. Yeah. So the Stones were shocked and couldn't believe the violence they'd seen. Uh, Jagger said afterward, I'd rather have police. Which, as we know, um, <laughs> Jagger was no... It's <laughs> a lot Understatement coming from of Jagger. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot coming from Jagger. Um, the Grateful Dead ended up canceling their show at the Fillmore that night. Uh, they felt a bit responsible for the whole thing, but it, it honestly, it was never really in control. It was wrestled away from them by the Stones and their hubris. Um, Bill Graham, uh, who is no saint, but he had been against the concert, he called Scully, uh, Rock Scully, um, the manager for the Grateful Dead, backstage at the Fillmore before they canceled the show. And again, Bill Graham, if you don't know who he is, definitely worth a Google search. He's a concert mogul of the 60s. Um, he called Scully a murderer before he was pushed out of the Grateful Dead's uh, dressing room that night. Wow. Um, the roads were completely choked with traffic, and there was mass confusion after the concert. Some folks decided to hunker down for the night. Uh, they're stoking campfires. Yeah. Um, the road crew, they broke down the stage. And uh, at the time, the Rolling Stones' custom purple rug that they used for the stage, um, it, it had survived the entire tour at this point. And two, Rolling, uh, sorry, two Hell's Angels spotted the Rolling Stones' rug, and they decided that it would look great in their clubhouse. So they grabbed this rug and put it in the back of their truck along with two um, Harley Davidsons. So Chip Monk, he's a tour director. He was the one who designed like the giant lights behind the stage, which was something prior no one had seen. Like this light, it's not a light show like Pink Floyd had, but it was like giant lights that like flooded everything. Um, Chip Monk was like, oh, they can't take the rug. So he goes to the Hell's Angels and explains to them why they can't take the rug. And they're like, ha cool story, bro. And they get in the truck to drive away. And as they're about to drive away, he grabs the rug to pull it off of the truck. Jesus. And it knocks one of the motorcycles off of the truck. Oh, no. So the motorcycle <laughs> falls off the truck. God. The Hell's Angels get out of the truck. And they beat him to a bloody pulp. They knock out his two front teeth. This is the who, one of the tour uh, managers, he's not the tour manager, he's a tour director, quote, and he got completely destroyed no, by the Nobody Hells is Angels. safe from the Hells Angels. Nobody we, is. we learned that. Nobody is. Um, they so, don't give a fuck who you are. Yeah. So he loses almost all his teeth, and uh, eventually the Hells Angels, quote, felt bad and brought the rug back, but um, I don't buy it. It, the damage was done. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're introduced to Jim McDonald. He's a 19-year-old surfer from Santa Cruz. Loves the local concert scene. He's uh, He went to the Rolling Stones concert in Oakland. Um, he uh, actually went to Pleasant Hill High School in Contra Costa County at oh, one point. Very close to here. So very close to home here. We're, we're, we live in Concord, and uh, Pleasant Hill is the next town over from us. Um, after the concert... He thumbs a ride, and uh, it was clear that no one was making progress. Uh, the The car that he had thumbed a ride with decides, you know what? There's 10 miles of bumper to bumper in either direction. No one's going anywhere. Let's just build a campfire and 
stay the night or at least try to outlast the traffic. Yeah. Um, there are two gentlemen in the back, Richard Sullivan and Mark Fager. They're like, there's always room for one more, man. So he like hops in the car with these two guys. There's a driver and then there's a, a, a woman with a young infant child, I think like a one or two year old child. And she's in the front seat. So this group of people, you know, is driving along and then they decide they're not going to get anywhere. So they get they get out of their car and they set up a campfire. He's prepared. He understands how cold it can get in December by the Altamont Pass. So he has his blanket. He kind of snuggles up and passes out next to the fire. Um, he dozes off and the first thing he awakes to is someone shaking him and being like, oh, this one's still alive. Um, an acid crazed individual had stolen a 64 Chrysler and at speeds of 60 miles an hour drove up the hill. Like if you've been to the Altamont pass, it's very hilly. So there's hill after hill after hill. Someone had stolen a car, driven up a hill and at the crest of a hill, at 60 miles an hour, kind of launched into the air and dropped directly onto their campsite. Holy shit. So it killed the two uh, gentlemen, Richard Soloff and Mark Fager. It injured the young mother, and it also almost killed McDonald. Um, the, The driver claimed that the angels were chasing him, and that's why he was driving so quickly. It's not substantiated, but uh, this was the driver talking to police, and before an arrest could be made, the driver slipped into the night and has never been seen again. Jesus. Uh, McDonald ended up surviving, but when he showed up to the emergency room, he was pronounced dead on arrival. His his signs were di- gone. And uh, they revived him and then brought him into surgery. And apparently afterward, he was, quote, no worse the wear. But uh, it was another set of violent circumstances Casualty and tragedy that outlined this event. So some more notes. Another great quote from Jagger. Um, If Jesus had been there, he would have been crucified. Oh, wow. Um, So all in all, the Rolling Stones and that tour, they made about $1.8 million. From the 69 tour? Yeah, from the 69 tour. Um, Can I say something? Yeah, sure. Um, One of my big takeaways watching the Gimme Shelter documentary was, so the first half of it, it, the, the documentary was set out to just cover the 69 tour and they ended up uh, giving so much attention at the end to Altamont because of what happened. But the first half is like them just being on tour and being sort of at the height of their career. And like, you know, they're wearing these crazy outfits and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are like powling around and they're like in a hotel room blasting their own blasting brown sugar. (laughs) They're recording and they're like dancing and they're like, the vibe is like so joyful. And it's like, you know, you start this documentary and you're like, oh, they're like at the height. You know, they're young. They're like so happy. Everything's going great. And they, they play all this concert footage pre-Altamont where they're just, the audience is wonderful and like everything is so beautiful, you know, in that realm of the 1960s love, you know, Woodstock, good vibes, wonderful thing. And then the second half of this documentary just you start seeing this footage of everyone at Altamont having these screaming, horrifying acid trips and the Hells Angels beating the shit out of people with pool cues and like the vibe just shifts. And it's it's a it's a heavy watch because you you're sort of elated at the beginning. You're like, wow, like this is so exciting for them and like you're in their you're really in their bubble and their world of like this is the height of their career yeah. and like the fucking Rolling Stones releasing brown sugar, like come on. And then everything just goes just 
so downhill. And by the end, Mick Jagger is completely fucking lost. But yeah. so that, that was my big takeaway is how, how big of a shift that tour is. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, stay up all night the next night. And uh, Sam Cutler was left behind to clean up this entire shit storm. And that's, Jesus. again, the tour manager for the, uh, for the Rolling Stones. Uh, behind at the scene of uh, Altamont, there were left behind thousands of sleeping bags and blankets, approximately 30 tons of garbage and waste, and tens of thousands of broken jugs of wine were left at the concert. He was, uh, and uh, Stone, uh, sorry, Stone, Sam Cutler was completely abandoned by the Stones in America, um, and his calls were never returned. They promised him they would, uh, pay for all of his fees and whatever, but he was left broke and penniless with like $300 in his pocket by the Rolling Stones. And um, Sam Cutler ended up taking refuge with the Grateful Dead um, because he was terrified of the Hells Angels and the Hells Angels were looking for him because he was a potential witness for the police. And he ended up actually becoming the tour manager for the Grateful Dead later. Oh. So Sam Cutler had a somewhat of a redemptive story. He yeah. um, he became a tour manager for many other great rock acts. Uh, might still be alive to this day. I haven't I haven't checked up. But uh, he ended up, like I said, getting abandoned in America, just shipwrecked in America, and uh, made made something of himself. Um so after that, there was a radio show the very next day that kind of asked the different perspectives. They got a hold of Sam Cutler. They got a hold of this guy, Pete Nels, from the Hells Angels. Um, Cutler said, I'm not going to put down the Angels again. Terrified. Yeah, of They course. did as they saw best in a difficult situation. So at this point in the show, that Grogan guy who was uh, the – con artist slash visionary of the yeah the yeah. concerts he played they, everyone's and rock scully too was interviewed here and he was the current manager of this of the uh, grateful dead rock scully um yeah. they all passed the blame to jagger wow they're saying he didn't want a single policeman and that's why they introduced the ideas of the hell's angels everyone's trying to get to the bottom of why were the hell's angels security yeah so everyone's saying, oh, it was Jagger. He didn't want police, so that's why the Hells Angels were there. But let's be honest. The Hells Angels were yeah. security for Grateful San Francisco-based bands for years. That's yeah. not the reason why the Hells Angels yeah. were security. Yeah, It was Grogan and Scully. It was their idea to introduce that. It's not like the Stones showed up and they're like, do you think the Hells Angels could uh, do security for us? No, it, it was presented to them because they had no plan. So and they didn't want police. So that was their only plan. That we don't want police. So Pete Nels repped the Hell's Angels in this um, call, and then later Sonny Barger also called in. Um, and this is when it was made known to the public that the that all the that the Hell's Angels were offered was five hundred dollars of beer to you know work as security for a three hundred thousand person free concert. Yeah. Yeah, and then he, of course, shifted ridiculous. the blame to Meredith Hunter, saying he had a gun and he was going to shoot Mick Jagger. Well, and, uh, and that, this, that this was the, the story. Yeah. yeah, that was the story that they were kind of sticking to. It's he had a gun, he was going to shoot Mick Jagger, so we took him down. Um, Rolling Stone, and like I mentioned earlier, they had just been founded out of the San Francisco Bay Area. 
And they became like the hit pulse of the music scene because at the time, San Francisco was the pinnacle of hip music. They were at the forefront, at the top. And so the the magazine that covered them was mostly just like a, a rah-rah like cheerleader for the scene. They mm-hmm. didn't they didn't do investigative journalism. That wasn't their thing. They were like, yeah. rah-rah, we have great music, rah-rah. Like that was what they yeah. did. Interesting. So when they started to dive into this Woodstock West um, tragedy, tragedy, yeah, they conducted thousands of interviews, wow. and they really got to the bottom of it. And they released, um, they released the actual, you know, story of what happened article, before yeah. the before Gimme Shelter came out. All yep. this. And this was the definitive story of Altamont. It changed everyone's view. It killed that stupid Woodstock West narrative. And uh, it actually won a literary award that year. Good. Um, So when we get to the Rolling Stones, they never actually signed any paperwork with regard to the concert. So there was literally nothing the law could do to tie the Rolling Stones to the legal case. Um, They became embroiled in their own legal struggles with their record label and manager, um, they were supposed to pay up to 90% of their earnings to the, to the English uh, government. And they decided rather t- than do that, they would just leave England. And I think uh, Mick Jagger lived in France or something like that. And uh, they just basically were eg- lived in exile from England rather than pay the taxes because they were broke before this concert and they finally had money again. Um, the Grateful Dead, they ended up alienating Rock Scully mainly because of this concert. Uh, it was his child and they were like, look, dude, we, uh, we just can't work. We're, we're not going to completely push you out and like ostracize you, but they pushed him away from his duties and he was basically pushed out of the Grateful Dead's inner circle after that. Um, Owsley Stanley, the guy who LSD guy, yeah, the LSD guy. Um, he was arrested by the feds for LSD manufacturing charges. The, the entire dead was actually arrested, I think, in Louisiana. Hmm. And uh, the only guy that the the police kept was Owsley Stanley. They they let everyone go on like drug charges, but then they kept Owsley, and he actually served prison time for LSD manufacturing charges. And that definitely ended the uh, pure LSD phase of San Francisco. Um, Death of the 60s. Yeah. And uh, the Grateful Dead completely shook themselves from the music industry at this point and Hmm. struck out on their own, becoming one of, if not the most successful independent cult bands of all time. So they were one of the few bands back in that day who was like, fuck you, fuck you. We're going to do everything ourselves And... The fans are still going to come. And the fans are going to come, and they yeah, did. And, and they're they going to follow with, us around. And they played with <laughs> hundreds of bands and hundreds of festivals over the course of their career, but they never once played with the Rolling Stones again. Um, Passaro, the guy who stabbed Meredith Hunter, mm-hmm. he was eventually charged with murder with the gas chamber hanging over his head. They were threatening the death penalty in this case. Um, it was an all-white jury, yeah. With and this was a planned you know strategy and it was also a planned strategy to have um a black attorney Ugh. represent Pissarro because they wanted to have this uh, oddly calculated PR move by the Hells Angels they wanted to have 
you know, it's the death of a young black man. They wanted to have a black man represent it's, them in the it's, courtroom. Uh, it's not unlike uh, the, I, there. I think there was a woman on the legal defense team for Bundy, right? Well, he ended up yes, defending himself, yes. but they they definitely planted a woman to be like. He can't be a monster. Yeah. She's on his side. 100%. Exactly. Same That's idea. exactly the tactic. Same it's idea. Deplorable. So this uh, attorney, I mean, there there were only three eyewitnesses who came forward and only two of them, or all, sorry, and only one yeah. could identify Pissarro. Two of them couldn't identify Pissarro. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame him. It was a nighttime so scuffle then, and all the angels yeah. kind of look alike. And also they're scared to death. And also they're fucking terrified so of the hell's angels. So Pissarro yeah. took the stand against the uh you know against the advisement of his uh counsel Pissarro took the stand and he admitted to it wow um because the Maisel's video clearly showed him stabbing him yeah yeah and uh and he said it was because of self defense because he saw him draw the gun um but he'd already attacked him at that but point but he had already attacked him so when the jury went out they found him innocent um, basically, they acquitted him. I don't know if they found him innocent. I think that's not a guilty. different thing. They found him not, not guilty, guilty yeah. acquitted. And um, even Pissarro himself could not believe that he had, you know, beat the beat the rap. Yeah. And uh, he was already in jail for car theft and, uh, God, it was something else too, but definitely car, uh, grand, grand theft auto. Well, as we know from before, he's a, kind of a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely in jail before that. He animal. got out. Um, eventually from the other charges, he was still in prison for years and years. Um, he was, he was found dead in 1985, uh, drowned in a pool with $10,000 in his pocket. So there's not really a there's some irony story there. about that, but Pissarro served some prison time for another, another, you know, crime that he committed. And then he was found dead in 1985. Um, the, the hell's angels never quite recovered their image after Altamont, they were basically public enemy number one in California. And in some people's eyes, they were like the new, like, like main villain uh, only next to the Italian mafia. Although it was like to some people it was like the, the, the Italian mafia in the seventies and the hell's angels are like, these are, you know, public enemy number one. Yeah. So they fell further into criminal enterprises. Sonny Barger fell into a mountain of cocaine and yes. then yeah. went <laughs> and then went I think he actually also went to prison for a while. I think he might still I'm be sure. alive today. He's alive. He's about yeah, to turn eighty one, which they're all shocking. excited about. Um so Marty Balin and the airplane, uh, Jefferson Airplane, they separated in nineteen seventy two. Gimme Shelter, the movie that we've been talking about, filmed by the Maisels, became a huge success, considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, rock dogs of all time. Um, the Stones and then the Maisels made a great deal of money from this uh, film. The Maisels became famous because of it. And the hippie scene was never the same. Um, it was kind of an, an inevitable collision of like the hopeful, like naive properties of the hippie love movement meeting harsh reality of mm -hmm. like you can't just give free love and have a bunch of people fucked up without expecting murders and rapes and yeah. all this kind of stuff so Altamont in conclusion was kind of the collision course of these two things that were always going to hit but it finally did you know in Tracy in 1969 and I think at this point it, I mean it was late 1969 but the death of the 60s and the idealism of the 60s was official 
after yeah. and it was already Ultima. dying because four months earlier were the Manson murders <laughs> yeah it was already on life support. August nineteen sixty nine. And we threw Manson in we there. We threw in. I oh, want to. I want to close this up with this, but I want to take like a two minute break. Sure. Okay. So, um, so we kind of wrapped up, or Stu wrapped up, sort of the impact on those bands, and uh, you know, the nineteen sixties, the end of the free love, uh, this kind of change. Um, but also, you know, let's not forget um, what happened to Meredith Hunter's family. Uh, so, at Alpha Anderson is uh, home that night at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, she gets a call, um, and it's a family friend looking to commiserate over the terrible news. This is how the family first learns that Meredith was killed at the concert. Um, and here's from the Medium article. No one from the concert contacted Hunter's mother, um, Altha Mae Anderson, after his death. The Stones eventually settled with the Hunter family for a reported 10K. Years after being acquitted of killing Hunter, Pissar was found dead. We know that. Okay. Um, also, uh, from the Rolling Stone article, most Altamont attendees didn't learn a fellow concert goer was dead until they heard the news on the radio that night or later that weekend. So this uh, family friend of, of Altha's, uh, Meredith's mom, calls her at 2.30 and goes, oh, I'm so sorry about what happened. And Altha's like, what happened? And remember, Altha is also schizophrenic. Mm. Um, so uh, Meredith Hunter's funeral took place four days after the concert at the Skyview Memorial Lawn in East Vallejo. Only 30 people attended, partially because the funeral notice had not been published until the day of the funeral. Uh, the family could not afford a gravestone, so the final resting place of their son and brother would remain unmarked for decades, a symbol of the forgetting already taking place. Meredith Hunter's name would be a footnote to music history, but it's linked to the real young man who had lived, not just died, disappeared under the earth. Is that a quote from... This is a quote from Rolling Stone. Okay. With no marker to serve as a reminder. Um, uh, his family after that, Meredith's brother Donald would sit out in the front yard day after day, staring into nothingness. Uh, his mother, Altha, underwent weeks... Remember, she's schizophrenic. Underwent weeks of electroshock therapy oh, at a hospital in Berkeley. I can't believe that was a thing in the 60s and 70s. And came home uh, partially absent as if a part of her had been excised. His sister Dixie, remember who raised him yeah. and was like, you shouldn't go to this concert. She, uh, she wasn't interested in the trial of Alan Pissarro, the Hells Angel. Uh, the case would bring her no closure and it certainly would not bring Meredith back. The verdict was no surprise. Dixie firmly believed that a white man would never be convicted of killing a black man in America at this time and the trial did nothing to disabuse her of the notion. They, yeah, they, they, uh, they knew that when it was an all-white trial. I mean, that was part of the strategy. Yeah. He's like, if I can get an all-white jury, there's no way they're going to convict. So, uh, yeah. sure enough, that's what happened. Um, so in a, so I won't fast forward to that really quick. Um, so, so Dixie, uh, the sister sort of carries this, this weight. Um, she says, you know, the Rolling Stones never reached out, um, you know, never acknowledged it. Um, she never watched Gimme Shelter. She didn't want to see her brother in his terrified last moments. She didn't want to remember him that way. Um, Dixie has a daughter, so Meredith's niece named Tammy Parker, um, Parker was in her early thirties when she discovered the truth about her uncle's death. Her mother's silence on the subject had left her unaware of how he died or the larger significance of his death. She was watching a VH1 program called the hundred most shocking moments in rock and roll. And we've watched this. This is how I first yeah. heard about this. When she heard the name Meredith Hunter mentioned and saw the now ubiquitous footage and she was flabbergasted. Um, Can you imagine seeing that's how your uncle died? Like you have no idea 
and then you watch VH1, and that's how you are. That's made how. Aware. That's how his niece found out Dixie's that's so daughter. Crazy. Um, and so she 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 takes on a every night at eight fifteen. She she talks about him and says his name, and she says Meredith Hunter was not just a name, not just a dead man at a rock concert. He was my uncle, and he was loved. Um, and then all there is there's a little bit of a. Of, of, of good news. Uh, in two, this is from Wikipedia. In 2006, filmmaker Sam Green released a short documentary. It's nine minutes long. I watched it today. Titled Lots, Lot 63 Grave Sea. So remember, Meredith was in an unmarked grave yeah. until 2006. Um, which revolves around the last day of Hunter's life and the unmarked grave in which he was buried on December 10th, 1969 at the Skyview Memorial Lawn Cemetery in Vallejo. After the film was screened widely at film festivals, and again, it's short, several people sent donations to the cemetery to buy Meredith Hunter a headstone, which was finally installed in 2008. So that's nice. At least yeah. he got a headstone. Dude, I mean, they, it's, they got $10,000 yeah. in a headstone. It's insane um, how how much he was erased, though, from yeah. this, you know. And it became and there's a little bit of criticism. Um, uh, so there's a New Yorker article by Sasha Freire Jones from 2019, and she she does criticize um, uh, Keith Richards' uh, memoir Life, where so this is the quote from Keith Richards' Life memoir Altamont: "It could only happen to the stones." In the film, you can see Meredith Hunter waving a pistol and you can see the stabbing. He had a pale lime green suit on and a hat. He was foaming at the mouth, too. He was as nuts as the rest. Hunter was not foaming at the mouth, unless Richards got a few nobody else reported. Um, but Richards is elco- sort of echoing the story told by the Gimme Shelter documentary that does get a lot of pushback today because it doesn't really... I think it mentioned, I think it mentions Meredith's name once and it's in the beginning when the reporter is mentioning it and the stones are watching it back. Yeah. Um, uh, Altamont is where Hunter lost his life, but you know, it sort of is framed at Altamont happened not to Hunter or his family, but to the Rolling Stones. So he sort of loses his story a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, he definitely does because of course people are going to gravitate towards the Rolling Stones or the biggest band in the world at the time. And yeah. probably now, honestly, like the, the patriarch band of the world, like I, I, you can't really say anyone else is like more of a veteran, you know, band than the Stones. So it's easy to push the narrative like this happened to the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones had this concert mm-hmm. happen to them, but it they weren't necessarily the victims here because yeah. they didn't serve any time. They weren't held accountable. They paid ten thousand dollars to the to the family. Like an insurance company pays more money than that for a wrongful death. Yeah. But because their name wasn't tied down to any paperwork, they just um they weren't tied to, I mean, they basically pillaged their way across the United States. They didn't pay for any of the hotels, any of the travel services, any of the cars. They abandoned that random dude, John James. He was one of the last people who was associated with the concert because he was the one who signed his name to everything. So anyone whose name was associated with the concert directly was just completely pilloried. And um, he went bankrupt, John James did. And uh, the Stones, they settled one debt for, like, one travel agency that they worked for. And whenever a travel agency tried to collect, they would just switch to a different travel agency. So they basically just pillaged the United States, took that money, and ran. And, um, I mean, I wouldn't call them, like, 
the mastermind villains no, of this story. No, I, I, like, think, I think they could have handled I the aftermath better. I think they were young better. dudes who were yeah. just fucked up and didn't understand. But I, I don't think it was... I don't think what happened was, you know, just that band's fault. There was no. so... so It was the perfect storm of yeah, things. Yeah, we've outlined it. And I, you know, I don't want to go too much longer, but I do want to point out, you know, one of the things after looking at this case, especially through, like, today's lens, it's like, okay, you want to think about sort of racial motivation from the Hells Angels. So I looked really deep into the Hunter S. Thompson book. Um, and there are countless, um, he, he goes through a lot of different sort of crimes that are committed and fights that roll out. And what's interesting is the Hells Angels are actually friends with a, uh, all black motorcycle gang from Oakland called, um, shit. I think the die, not the Diablos, um the dragons i think and so they have like a mutual respect but there's there's also so many instances that hunter s thompson is documenting in this book that are um completely racist language used by the hell's angels uh they refer to uh, black people in Oakland by the N-word casually. That's how they talk about them. They talk about them in that sense. And keep in mind, these are guys that were raised in the 50s too. So like, yeah. of course, that racism is going to be apparent. And there are definitely some violence against um, young black people in Oakland that Hunter S. Thompson documents in this book uh, that are very damning. Um, so Sonny Barger has said like, you know, okay, the Hells Angels are not a racist organization. You know, we're not like built on that. And that is probably true. But just like, you know, cops, there's a couple bad apples or whatever. Of course, you know, this white, primarily white motorcycle gang that, you know, was formed in the 40s and 50s is going to have some racially motivated violent tendencies. And so I think that's absolutely um, an underlying theme into what happened. And I think that, you know, all that aggression that built up at Altamont and all that anger was taken out on a person of color. And I don't think that's completely random. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I completely agree that it was probably racially motivated. Um, especially towards an interracial couple, which at the the time was taboo. And, uh, Tony Funchess, uh, the bodyguard for the Rolling Stones is, uh, noted for saying that he saw, you know, Meredith Hunter Murdoch in the crowd. Of course, he was hard to miss. Yeah, he's wearing a lime And green he suit. looked around and he noticed that the Rolling Stones, or I keep calling the Hells Angels the Rolling Stones. It's okay. It's no, unbelievable. it's okay. The Hells, the Angels, Hells Angels are noticing him. also noticed him, they're gonna, them they're, too. They're targeting him. They're so absolutely they, targeting him. They were him. looking yeah. at him the whole time. They had already attacked him once before for trying to climb on the stage. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's undeniable that it could have been, I mean, Obviously, it's all hypothetical, but I think it's a strong possibility that it was racially motivated. Yeah, um, if you wanna, if you wanna read a little more detail of what I'm talking about, because I refuse to quote it, uh, page two thirty seven through two forty two um, in the Hell's Angels book by Hunter S. Thompson, you will find quite a bit of uh, sort of horrifying incidents going on. So that is the conclusion of the tragic free concert at Altamont. We've kind of covered every nook and cranny for the most detailed podcast we've done. I mean, it it is a bummer, but it it feels good to finally wrap it all up. Um, And I think it's important to to really get all the details of what what went wrong and how these things happen. You know, so that history doesn't repeat itself. Yeah. You know, it's it's such this important 
uh, tragedy that happened. And I, I just like um, Tammy, uh, Meredith's niece, first heard about this on some VH1 five yeah. minute, like, oh, 100 most shocking moments. Here's five minutes dedicated to this. There was someone on speed. They got stabbed by the Hells Angels. Let's move yeah. on. And I was like, oh, what? Crazy. And yeah. so it was so cool to to have you and I, you especially, do this like real deep dive where it's like, how do you create this perfect storm? of clashing of culture and drugs and all this shit and violence and like just create, there has to be this horrific climax. But also if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, well, don't have a gun at a rock concert. Don't try to climb the stage at a rock concert. You know, don't commit a crime or whatever (laughs) it might be. That is not justification for and what happens for a death sentence that is passed by an individual immediately yeah like anytime a crime is committed it does not mean it's literally the police's job to not kill people and it's the hell's angels job at the time to defend the stage stage, it wasn't their job to kill somebody and and chase after someone that's the damning shit right there it's like he was trying to leave he was like i don't want any part of this so the jury at the time called it self-defense and i think a jury nowadays would be put in a similar situation where they'd be like is this self-defense because this is what the the attorney is telling us it it is not justified and and these deaths of like young black people are not justified just because a crime might like might have been committed during this time that's not a death sentence that's not that's not the power that bees um control to say well you appear like you've committed this crime so therefore i'm going to use fatal force you know to to kill you yeah, that is not well. And you, you also have to wonder, like, okay, and this is like an like, early example. Like, of let's it. pretend, let's pretend instead of Meredith Hunter getting stabbed and beaten to death at this concert, Patty. that it was Patty. Yeah. Do you think she would have gotten airlifted out? Yes, I do too. And she would have, and he would have been uh, convicted. And the Rolling Stones, if they put her body on stage, I think everything would have gone. They wouldn't have kicked her body off stage. No, they, the Rolling Stones would have paid more than ten thousand. It's just things would have gone very differently. Like you, you, you can't, you know, you can't ignore that. No. Just, anyway, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. This has been a very intense episode for sure. Yeah. Um, but we just want everyone to know that we will probably be doing a much lighter episode. Yeah. <laughs> next, we gotta, next week gotta lighten it up because this one was this pretty heavy. Been, this and, research uh, has been definitely tough. doing three weeks of research on this four weeks even, has yeah. been pretty heavy. So um we're we're stoked to kinda, you know, kind of exercise ourselves from this and yeah. go to something different. Finish this up. Can I can I end on a on a light note? Yes. I'm gonna go in the my favorite murder tradition and end on something light. Um I was thinking about what we wanted to talk about on this podcast today, like when we weren't speaking about the actual Ultimate and I was like, Oh, you know, we, we had a we had a pretty monumental day yesterday. We got to hug our dad for the first time in 13 months. Yeah. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, our dad just got fully, <laughs> hashtag fully we're vaxxed. We're all fully vaxxed. And we're all fully vaxxed, so we got to hug our dad. Um, it out. was the first time I hugged him since I had tested negative like a day prior or something like that. Yeah. And he, he's he been, you know, really locked down during this whole thing. So 
it it was a really nice moment to to see our dad and get to spend time with him inside and you know unfiltered unmasked yeah and i got to show him just, all my paintings i've been doing this last year and got some great advice from him and it just yeah there there's these we're in this strange period right now you know april 2021 some people are getting vaccinated it's it's rolling out slowly like where things are just starting to kind of come back and there's this kind of light at the end of the tunnel that keeps getting closer. So if that's a good note to end on, then we'll end on that. I think so, (laughs) yeah. And for Radio Keith News, we're basically just working on um, a new record. We're going to record three new tracks this weekend, uh, maybe four new tracks even. So we are pretty much just, you know... Trucking along. Trucking along, not doing live shows really but working a lot on new music. So we're going to hope to release a new record um, later this year. Mm-hmm. But thank you guys for listening. <laughs> it means the world to us. If uh, you like the show, to subscribe to our page. Go to you know Radio Keys Music, either on Instagram or Facebook, and uh, subscribe to that page as well. Follow. And um, so thanks again for sticking through that whole thing. And, Oof, yeah. And, and if, you, uh, if you can stomach, give me shelter. Just to get the visuals of this. Yeah. Yeah. But so, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tough it's a tough watch. So anyway, um, if you have any ideas of something that we should cover in the future, oh, just yeah, you let know, us know slip into our DMs <laughs> and uh, let us know. Slide into our DMs. So uh, my name is Stuart. I'm Emily. And we're gonna keep searching for that sweet soul music.
scary.